And in 2017, I discovered this comment posted on, of all places, Armstrong Economics. And on there, there's this comment, and I quote from this person, I have just returned from visiting my friend. He was a senior biologist in one of the large West Coast universities. While there, he described an amazing situation to me that has alarmed me greatly. He said the research at the university had conclusively identified the complete and almost complete collapse of several dozen food chains within the Pacific Ocean, all within the last 36 months or so. Further, in unauthorised exchanges with the relevant departments of other coast universities, he learned that the number and numbers involved may have been more like hundreds of chain collapses in the same time frame as opposed to dozens. Finally, in talking with an authoritative figures in Vancouver, they apparently believe that the figure is likely closer to a thousand. As bad as all this sounds, here is the real rub. Regarding these findings about food chain collapses, mutations and injuries, my friend's university has instituted a policy that forbids them from publishing their findings, from discussing their findings on the subject publicly or in private with other researchers who otherwise their own campuses or finally from taking unauthorised radiation readings as part of their research. The penalties for violating these rules are severe, loss of tenure, civil lawsuits or violation of contract and potentially employment termination. So all this information points to that the greatest single catastrophe has been caused by the massive radiation flying into the Pacific. But most of the creatures have died from their food chains collapsing and starvation because these embryonic sea life is hypersensitive to nuclear radiation contamination just as human fetuses are. Hi, this is Bruce Lipton and you're listening to Planet FM. Kia ora, greetings, and welcome to Planet FM 104.6. I'm Tim Lynch, and I trust that you are doing well. I invite you to stay with me over the next hour as we discuss and find ways to take care of our unique and magnificent green planet Earth. On the phone from Caloundra in Queensland, I have researcher Peter Daly, who originally blew the whistle on the radiation cloud that went over Australia, then carried on down the east coast of Australia to finally pass over Tasman Sea to the South Island and over Dunedin. And this interview was way back on the 26th of April 2012. And I've got Peter on the phone again solely because we are hearing now that the millions of tonnes of radioactive water that the Japanese government has got stored at Fukushima, the very broken down nuclear power plant in Japan. And so I'm wanting to say, Kiora, thank you so much, Peter, for, again for giving your time, brother. Thank you, Tim. I'm very pleased that you invited me back to discuss this very important issue. Yeah, well, could you quickly go through the whole episode when you, all of a sudden, at 6.30 one morning, your alarm went off? Yeah, well, basically after Fukushima, I kept a very close eye on it. 
And I also, in 2011, ordered a Gamascount Geiger counter. The Geiger counter, because of worldwide demand, didn't turn up until late 2011. And then from 2011 into 2012, I was getting familiar with how to use it. And I finally worked out how to set it, the alarm. And because I didn't want to be sitting there looking at it 24 hours a day, I set it up in my home office. That would alarm if the level went over a certain threshold. In this case, 0.3 microserverts per hour. So I set it and forgot it. And then in early January, it was a Sunday afternoon, very hot, very strong wind coming off the Pacific Ocean. And I walked into my office and Linda was sitting there and she says, for God's sake, would you turn that bloody alarm off? I said, what alarm? And all of a sudden it dawned on me, there was a Geiger counter and I went over and it was peaking quite dramatically at very high. So I immediately rushed around and started to close the doors and windows and also ring up friends to do the same thing. I sent the information of the detection to the local newspaper because I actually had it set up so that it was actually recording the radiation as it came through in a charting system. And I sent them a copy of the chart, which showed that it went up quite dramatically above our normal levels, at least eight times background, and that it lasted for quite a while. The other interesting thing was the initial waves that came through was so high that it caused the Geiger counter to go into saturation, which meant that during that period, the charting system didn't record anything because the Geiger counter wasn't recording anything. So we really don't know how high the radiation cloud that came through was. It was quite dramatic and quite shocking. At the same time, when the article was actually published in the local paper here, they got in contact with the radiation specialists here in Australia and they basically said what they usually say when an event like this happens, nothing to worry about. It was possibly the release of radiation from a local hospital and I'm thinking, gee, I wouldn't even want this release from a, you know, a local hospital. Anyhow, it was quite impossible that it came from a local hospital because the wind direction of the day came off the Pacific Ocean and we live quite close to the Pacific Ocean so unless the hospital was in the middle of the Pacific somewhere, the radiation <laughs> source wasn't from a local hospital. Yes. So it's one of those things that we weren't expecting. Then... After a couple of weeks of that being published in the local paper, I had a contact from New Zealand who said that they were also getting quite significant increases in detections of radiation at their location, and that would keep me posted. Then a week or so after that, they sent me another report, which shocked them as well, as well because they had their Geiger counter and the alarm went off. And this was about 2 a.m. in the morning or something like that, and this radioactive cloud came through was even much more dramatic than the one I detected. What shocked everyone about this was that the location of this detection by this gentleman in New Zealand was in Dunedin, which is on the South Island, and no one thought it was possible that a radioactive cloud could go that far south. But when we did research and we looked at global wind patterns, you can actually see how radiation can get that far south into the southern hemisphere as it breaks through what they call the equatorial barrier, which tends to keep most of the radiation from an event in the northern hemisphere. In the northern hemisphere, you see a mixing occurring there, and then you get these big fingers of cloud banks and things striking really deep into the southern hemisphere. It's not like it hits 
the equator and then flows down evenly through the southern hemisphere. It actually comes through as these big strong streams of hot moist air that flow down dramatically far south and even further than New Zealand at times. But if I remember correctly, the detection he had, which was only brief but was significant, was up to 4.5 microservits per hour. And then it wasn't long after that that I had a visit to Australia here and we're visiting some old friends. And Jill across the road, from me, just happened to be one of your friends, one of those synchronicity type of That's <laughs> right. Visit. Yes, fantastic. After that, I also detected quite significant radioactive clouds coming through 2012, 2013. And as that progressed on, things have died down somewhat and we aren't getting those dramatic events that were happening then. But a lot of people aren't aware that this event, even though they call it the Fukushima nuclear catastrophe, was not just isolated to the Fukushima nuclear site. We have a report from the Japanese Nuclear and Industrial Safety Agency that the earthquake and subsequent tsunami affected 14 nuclear reactors at four nuclear sites all along the east coast of Japan. But most of the focus has been on the Fukushima Daiichi site, which has six reactors. So this is much more widespread than just the Fukushima site. The trouble is because of press censorship, etc., we haven't heard much about what's actually happened at the other three nuclear sites besides Fukushima. Fukushima was probably where the most of the serious damage occurred, but there is also evidence that there was significant serious damage that was incurred at other sites as well. The whole Fukushima nuclear disaster is more like a catastrophe because all this pollution, nuclear pollution fallout from these sites has been flowing in the Pacific Ocean. Fallout that fell on Honshu Island in Japan in the forests and things. Every time it rains or we have a typhoon, it washes more of that contamination down into the rivers and into the Pacific. On top of that, you have these molten cores that are melted into the ground and the groundwater is flowing over them into the Pacific Ocean. It's the only thing that's cooling them down. They have built an ice wall around into the ground of the nuclear site at Fukushima where the reactors just relocated and melted into the ground to try and stop as much of that groundwater flying over them as they can. But that ice wall has not stopped all the contamination. It still has leaks in it. A lot of people think that in a nuclear event like this, most of the creatures in the Pacific Ocean are actually going to die directly from their nuclear contamination through cancers and mutations and things like that. But the dynamic is actually different. The way to think of it is this. The human embryo, we know from studies, is extremely sensitive to exposure to ionising radiation. When you look at studies that have been done, embryos are pretty well all life on the planet is also affected significantly and is much more sensitive to ionising radiation. The way to think of the Pacific Ocean, it's like one gigantic worm that has all this embryonic life, zooplankton and phytoplankton that are all producing lots of embryos and life. And you have fish eggs, you have other crustaceans and things. All these things have microscopic embryos, in a sense. 
and they're all exposed to this pollution that's gone into the Pacific Ocean. So the thing that happened wasn't that all these creatures started to die from radiation exposure. They all started to die because all their food chains collapsed, because of the dramatic reduction in phytoplankton, etc., in the oceans, their food source, which was feeding smaller creatures above them and the, and the bigger creatures above them, and then eventually the seals, the whales, the orcas, etc. So large numbers of whales, orcas and seals, etc., died from starvation before they actually got tumours and other radiation illnesses. And that's why during that period of 2012 and 13, there were lots of reports of migratory seabirds dying. They weren't actually dying directly from the radiation, which they possibly would have if they'd lived longer. They died because of a lack of food. Thousands of food change in the Pacific Ocean collapsed. And that's what caused a huge mass of life of Pacific sea creatures. It was shocking. There was huge amounts of reports. They tried to disguise it by saying that this warm blob had appeared off the west coast of America and that was causing the problem. But there's a strong Pacific current that flows past Japan and it carries lots of nutrients and sea life all up along the Alaskan coast and down the west coast of America. And where the experts will say, look, the uh, Pacific Ocean is a huge ocean. There's a amount of radioactive fallout and pollution is a drop in the ocean. They're disguising the fact that this huge amount of radioactive release getting into those currents does not dissipate quickly. And that's where most of the life in the Pacific migrates because that's where the richest food sources are. And that's why a lot of the food chains actually collapsed. There was a huge cover-up of this. And in 2017, I discovered this comment posted on, of all places, Armstrong Economics. Oh, OK. I'm familiar with him, yes. And on there, there's this comment, and I quote from this person, I have just returned from visiting my friend. He was a senior biologist in one of the large West Coast universities. While there, he described an amazing situation to me that has alarmed me greatly. He said the research at the university had conclusively identified the complete and almost complete collapse of several dozen food chains within the Pacific Ocean, all within the last 36 months or so. Further, in unauthorised exchanges with the relevant departments of other coast universities, he learned that the number and numbers involved may have been more like hundreds of chain collapses in the same time frame as opposed to dozens. Finally, in talking with an authoritative figures in Vancouver, they apparently believe that the figure is likely closer to a thousand. As bad as all this sounds, here is the real rub. Regarding these findings about food chain collapses, mutations and injuries, my friend's university has instituted a policy that forbids them from publishing their findings, from discussing their findings on the subject publicly or in private with other researchers who otherwise their own campuses, or finally from taking unauthorised radiation readings as part of their research. 
the penalties for violating these rules are severe. Loss of tenure, civil lawsuits or violation of contract and potentially employment termination. So all this information points to that the greatest single catastrophe has been caused by the massive radiation flying into the Pacific. But most of the creatures have died from their food chains collapsing and starvation because the embryonic sea life is hypersensitive to nuclear radiation contamination just as human fetuses are. Well, Peter, this is a shocking learning for me and naturally upsets me hugely. But there's another aspect too regarding the censorship. Can you tell us about the shifting of the goalposts when the authorities, the scientific authorities, both in America and even in Europe and Japan, shifted the microservice? Can you tell us about this, please? What actually happened after Fukushima, and there was huge amounts of radiation being released into the atmosphere and contaminating large areas of northern Japan, It was also contaminating large areas of North America, like Canada and in America. It turns out that what the officials did was quietly raise the amount of radiation in food that was considered to be safe 20 times the previous standard. According to EU bylaws, radiation limits may be raised in a nuclear emergency to prevent food shortages, and that's actually what they did. But equally, they were putting out press releases saying that the European Union would insist that the Japanese tested the food and at the same time put certificates on that if it was exported, it would be safe to eat. But they didn't inform people that they just raised their safety limits by 20 times, which raises a big question, what is a safety limit? If it's a safety limit, say, a certain amount, and then they increase it 20 times... Well, it doesn't make logical sense to call it a safety limit, does it? Not at all. So they did this all around the world. It didn't just happen in Europe. All the countries like New Zealand, Australia, also did the same thing. That way they could say, look, this food is coming to your country, but it's below the safety limit. I think that's pretty disgusting because you're trusting your government and you can see from the information that they were deceptively lying to their populations. This sort of deceptions have gone on continually, even regarding deaths and fatalities that happened after Fukushima. You often see reports coming out and say, oh, look, hardly anyone died from contamination exposure from Fukushima. Most of them died from the tsunami or they died of the stress of being worried about contaminated with the radiation. But over that period of time, I actually kept a huge list of reports of all the contamination and where it went and how it affected people's health. I called it the Fukushima Nuclear Catastrophe Fatalities and Injuries List and I actually published it on a number of websites and it shows clearly that large numbers of people, men, women and children, have died from their exposure to the contamination from the Fukushima nuclear disaster. They even go so far as to say and no one died, but we have reports showing that from the Japanese themselves, from emails, that within a short period of time they already knew that five workers had received fatal doses. And I have that listed on the website as well. But ongoing from there, there's been a dramatic increase in thyroid cancers, leukemias, and illnesses amongst the Japanese population, as well as a dramatic drop in birth rate demographics. 
I could go on and on about the huge numbers that have been affected by this, but it wasn't just the Japanese. A lot of the military bases in Japan were significantly contaminated, and also we have the aircraft carrier group that stood off the Japanese coast. Ronald Reagan. With the disaster relief. They were also exposed to huge amounts of radiation, and a lot of the members of that task group have become seriously ill and launched a class action, and that class action has been ongoing. But during the process of this ongoing class action, a lot of them actually died, and their children were affected as well. So I refer to the Fukushima nuclear disaster as actually the Fukushima nuclear catastrophe. It has had profound effects all around the globe, particularly Japan, the Northern Pacific, Canada and America. And as you go further east from Japan, maybe to a lesser degree in Europe. But if you look at the radiation cloud simulations that were done, they were significant and dramatic. And that those clouds were ongoing. The other people who were severely affected were a lot of air crews who were flying through those radioactive clouds and weren't informed. A lot of them were getting sick and getting what were called beta burns, beta radiation burns. But they were told the reason for that was the new uniforms that they were using were causing allergic reactions on their skin. This sort of thing has been going on constantly regarding this subject, regarding the Fukushima nuclear catastrophe. Remember, it's not just Fukushima that was affected. All up, 14 reactors and four nuclear sites that were seriously affected by the tsunami and earthquake damage. Over a period of time, it became obvious to me that a lot of people had no knowledge about radiation and how it affects them. So I created another site. So if an event like this happened again, they would have significant information. It's basic to start with. I have to go and do more research on how to monitor radiation, how to test food for radiation. The other thing that became very apparent was that people were scrambling to find out where the radiation monitoring sites were. And there was no clear central place where you could actually do that. So I created an international list of radiation monitoring stations and that list can be downloaded as a PDF. So in the event of a radiation event, it might be the case that the site could go down because it wouldn't be able to handle the traffic. The website for that, please, Peter? Yeah, it's a bit of a long address, but it's sccc.org.au forward slash international minus sign radiation minus sign monitoring minus sign stations and I'll give you some basic knowledge on the sort of things you should look for if you're monitoring radiation in your environment. It also has links to that the Pacific is dying with that quote that I read out earlier. Fatalities and injuries resulting from the Fukushima catastrophe and a few other subjects that I cover there. There's also ways that you can set up a very cheap Geiger counter using your mobile phone if you wanted to. I have no financial interest in doing that with the people I point to. I just pointed to that piece of information of how you could use your mobile phone as, as a Geiger counter if you download this piece of software because most people have mobile phones now. But on this site, you'll find listed by country the radiation monitoring sites. 
And even though it's extensive and covers worldwide, one of the things it shows is that there are huge patches where there are no significant monitoring sites that are publicly available. And even if you do find radiation monitoring sites that are run by government, the experience for Fukushima tells us that during a nuclear disaster, you can't trust governments. There's a lot of evidence from research that has been done at Harbor Fukushima. A lot of the nuclear monitoring systems in Japan and also North America were tampered with and taken offline. Or in Japan, they cleaned around the radiation monitors that they had so that the contamination would drop and so that the monitoring station would show lower levels than are actually in that location. I was also sent a sample of black fungus material that was collected in Japan and was given the privilege of testing it. What we found was that black fungus material that was reportedly growing in lots of locations around the Fukushima nuclear site was highly contaminated. The sample I had was actually only a very small amount and it was encased in resin so that it would stop the contamination spreading during transport, etc. And I posted my results up on a website. And when I did that, what I actually found was that there's a lot of response from people to the testing and what was actually happening. And I said, well, look, that this sample, we didn't actually know the weight of it. And by looking at it next to the tip of a pen, I made the rough estimate that it may be you know, very small weight, you know, a fraction of a gram or three grams or less. It just so happens on that site, when we're having this conversation, a weight specialist chimed in and said, looking at that and having weighed fungus-type materials before, I would say that that is far less than three grams and probably more like 0.3 grams or something like that, which means that becquerels per kilogram of the fungus would have been in something up in the hundreds of thousands of becquerels per kilogram. You have to understand that fungus breaks down and breaks down into spores and things like that as well, and that floats around in the air and people are breathing that in. The other thing that I've came across which is really interesting in my research is that all the safety levels that are set by governments, etc., are all based on false premise, and that is, if you look at it, it doesn't matter whether it's ionising radiation or non-ionising radiation, they use a similar principle to set the safety levels. They determine the amount of increase in a one kilogram of water when exposed to a certain amount of ionising or non-ionising radiation. In the ionising radiation, they call it microservits per hour, the dose, and in non-ionising radiation, they may use microwatts per square metre. You can get variations and all that, but the principle is... In both systems, they're classing the human body as a plastic bag full of water, and they do not take into account in these measurements any of the real biological effects that can take place at low levels of exposure to either of these types of radiation. Also, Geiger counters in the West are calibrated using cesium to work out the dose calibration. That's all very well and good, except that if you're in an environment that has radiation exposure and it's not cesium, dose models are useless. They don't mean anything except for telling you whether your background is increased or not significantly. So there's a tremendous amount of deception in the nuclear industry about the biological effects of radiation on the human body. Equally, if you're exposed externally to radiation from a nuclear source, 
in your environment. You may walk into it and be exposed and then walk past it and you're out of it. And that effect may be very limited. But if you're breathing in fine particles that are contaminated into your lungs or through ingestion through eating food, then that radiation is up close and personal for long periods of time in your body and can do far more significant damage than any dose model would indicate. Often they get around this by saying, well, the liver's been contaminated with a certain amount of radiation and they take the weight of the entire liver and then extrapolate what the dose of the entire liver is to that radiation. But let's take the lungs as an example. One of the things they found in Fukushima after the event was that a lot of the cesium was actually encased in very fine glass-like particles. So one of those little fine glass particles gets in your lungs and sits there, doesn't dissolve away, and it's exposing the cells closest to it to enormous radiation doses. The way it works is this. Let's say I had a source of radiation in the room on a table and I stood close to it and the dose was four microservice per hour. If I moved twice the distance away, it would be now one microservice per hour. If I doubled the distance again, it'd go down a quarter. Every time you double the distance, a quarter of the exposure. But equally, if something is close, every time you halve the distance, it's four times the radiation exposure. Well, on a microscopic level, if you have a very hot particle that you've ingested into your lungs and it's exposing those cells closest to it to large amounts of radiation, it's getting enormous doses, but they don't take this into account in the dose model, which is a really huge shortcoming in the whole scheme of things and the way they monitor safety levels. Equally, I would like to point out that safety levels aren't really safety levels. What they represent is how much, how many people out of a million a government is willing to accept will die or be seriously injured by the exposure. So if we go from country to country, we'll find that the so-called safety levels vary from country to country. Now, you would think that a safety level would be universal worldwide, but it isn't. It depends on what that particular government's assessment is of how many people they're willing to have die per million out of the population or be injured when exposed to that hazard. Is there anything you'd like to say, Tim? Well, I mean, I'm speaking with Peter Daly, an independent researcher on Fukushima and the lies and distortions and untruths about it. This has been ongoing, Peter. You did tell me way back when I met you in Caloundra and you said this is huge and so I've done two radio interviews on this and this is the third and naturally I'm concerned and as shocked <laughs> as I was the first time in meeting you and, and so we have a situation where I'm just saying that We've all been censored, and the fact is that the goalposts have been shifted to a degree that out of sight, out of mind, and, and so this is a, a huge disappointment for the human race to realise that their governments and their institutions and their research scientists and their professional people are failing us and failing our children and failing all living creatures by just not stating the truth and doing something about it. And, of course, we have to be able to make this effort. And I've been involved with 5G, and 
We talk about the invisibles of 5G because we can't see this radiation coming off these telephone towers and God knows what else, just like we cannot see the invisible radiation from cesium, etc. And so we are caught in this realm where we're in this microwave oven of sorts. And so I'm upset, but I'm also charged to get involved because it's really interesting. I'll just throw this one into the piece. There's a health food crowd in Napier called Chantal. And in 2012, I got on the phone to them and I said, look, I've noticed that your organic oats that you get are coming from Canada. So I sent them some graphic images of the radiation cloud going over North America, particularly in the first day of Fukushima. And so they got in contact with me and said, right, Tim, we're pulling out of Canada. And so they decided to source their organic oats from Australia. So here is a situation where a socially responsible company have got in and done the right thing. And But as you can see, there's just so few people who want to commit to an act of goodwill for their client base. And right now we've got millions of tonnes of water that's contaminated sitting around Fukushima Daiichi and the government in Japan are pushing, 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 programming us to say that they're going to dump it in the Pacific, even though all the local fishermen in Japan are saying, no, 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 there is silence from the rest of the Pacific Basin, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere, solely because we are being censored and we don't know what's going on. So do you want me to talk about that water now? Please, yes. Okay. Now, in Japan at present, because the Fukushima disaster is ongoing, and to be quite honest, they, after a decade now, they still haven't got on top of it. It's still a festering sore on the side of the Pacific Ocean, and there are still masses of water that flow over the site during typhoon and rain events. And also they've got the underground river there washing contamination continually into the Pacific Ocean. But because the cores melted into the ground, the only way they can cool them is allow the groundwater to flow over them. Well, when the groundwater flows over the cores, it gets highly contaminated, so they've been pumping that out and putting it into tanks. Now, they have masses and masses of tanks of this contaminated water. It's been put through special filtering systems to remove the worst of the contamination. But the filtering system won't take out things like tritium, which is radioactive hydrogen, and some other contamination materials also. They've got to the point where they've got so much of this stored in these tanks that claiming that the only way they can get rid of it is now to release it into the ocean. They claim that tritium is relatively harmless, and they don't point out that there is other contamination in amongst the tritium that isn't so harmless. But equally, tritium from independent research is, is far more dangerous than the generally the radiation industry will let on. Relatively speaking, the amount of water in those tanks is small compared to what's already gone into the Pacific Ocean. But as I've described, this Pacific Ocean has been dramatically affected from the radiation that's already gone in there. And my personal opinion is it shouldn't be used as a dumping ground for all this extra contamination that they've collected in these tanks. For instance, there's been lots of reports of the tanks leaking at different times because these tanks were built in a hurry, on the cheap, and they're starting to deteriorate and break down. The tanks themselves are massive, and you're talking thousands of them. The fishermen locally obviously don't want they released into the Pacific Ocean because they spent a lot of time trying to convince people that 
their catches will be fine and then the Japanese government saying they're going to release all this water into the coast of Fukushima, it's going to decimate the fishing industry because people will feel around the world that there's a possibility that the fish there could be contaminated. Greenpeace and others have been jumping up and down and saying, well, it's not just tritium that's in those tanks, there's carbon-14 and everything like that in there as well than they're not talking about. And this has long half-lives. That means that if you release a certain amount of radiation into the environment of a particular isotope, each isotope has a half-life. That means it will be half as radioactive after a certain period of time. Things with short half-lives tend to be more radioactive than things with long half-lives, as a general rule. That can vary somewhat, but generally speaking, that's the case. A lot of the other things about this site is that we don't really have a full picture of what's actually been happening. There's been lots of cover-ups, um, deception. I mean, for instance, for the first three months of this catastrophe, the Japanese denied that the nuclear reactors at Fukushima, any of them, had actually melted down. The other thing that a lot of people should be aware of is this, that it's not just the nuclear reactors that were active at the time that melted down. There are also huge fuel pools sitting above these reactors which had multiple reactor cores that were spent nuclear fuel that were taken out of the reactors and they were put into these big swimming pools to cool down. So you had multiple cores of reactors stored in these giant swimming pools above the Fukushima reactors and then when this catastrophe hit those swimming pools drained and there's a lot of evidence that those fuel rods that were in those pools cooling down actually caught fire and released huge amounts of radiation into the atmosphere. It wasn't just the cores at Fukushima in those reactors that melted down and went into the ground. It's also the multiple cores that were in those cooling swimming pools on top. And we're talking large numbers of reactor cores going up in smoke. Zirconium rods melted down and caught fire. So you're not just talking about single core nuclear reactors causing a disaster here. You're talking larger numbers of melted down nuclear reactor cores either went into the ground or went up in smoke into the atmosphere. And there's lots of reports of fatalities and injuries that were coming out of North America at the time, particularly amongst children, etc., being affected and it was quite extensive. There was a lot of censorship happening also at the same time about what was actually happening. There were the isolated reports where people would come on and describe to the American public what was happening. For instance, there was a peer review study that showed that 14,000 US deaths from Fukushima, and this was on the 22nd of December 2011. Basically, an extract from that says there's shocking new evidence out of the Fukushima disaster may have led to the deaths of as many 14,000 in America. And the co-author of this new report said that the link between the increase in deaths here in America and the ongoing Fukushima nuclear crisis may be needed to be upgraded to 22,000. So that's just at the beginning of when this disaster was happening. Well, we've got a situation now where we need to be able to yet again 
call on the people. It doesn't appear that we're going to get any support from the government or any of the so-called universities or other research centres, institutions. It's up to us, really, isn't it? Because we've been betrayed by our elected representatives. Well, that's exactly right. Um, Here's another report dated the 29th of January 2018. Tokyo not fit for human habitation. Extract. The doctor told her that 9 out of 10 of his child patients in metropolitan Tokyo had reduced blood cell counts due to exposure to radioactivity and if they moved away from the location, they might recover. This particular person's daughter was 5 years old at the time of the accident. She was cheerful and active, but after one year of the accident, the health condition became bad and she had trouble by strange symptoms. She told me, Mummy, I feel so bad. I have no power. My hands hurt, my legs hurt, my body hurts. In fact, my daughter became so sick that she could not live a normal life at all. These are the reports you're not hearing about. This is just one isolated report. But on that Fukushima disaster site where I have the fatalities and injuries, that's just one of those reports. Well, Peter, what are we going to do with all this water that's sitting there in these deteriorating tanks and an unaware population? And that's Canada, America, Australia, New Zealand, Hawaii's caught in the crosshairs too. So, is well, that- Basically what actually happens is every year the Japanese flag that they're going to release the tanks' contents into the Pacific Ocean. If there's enough protests from the international community and from the local communities, they generally back down. At this time, it looks like they're going to press ahead. So I think it's only through international pressure that we're going to stop it from happening. Well, people, listeners, I'm sorry, listeners, I didn't want to be a radio host that pushed all this sort of news. I wanted to actually talk about the possibilities of a human being, how we can actually live as a global family awakening into being. Peter, this is the situation I'm in. I want to be able to talk about our potential and possibilities because we were given a profoundly magnificent planet with all the life-attributing material of fresh, vital air, fresh, pure water, a wonderful food chain. And here we are at the moment. We're in lockdown on multiple levels. We are under some sort of huge psychological disadvantage and we're in the middle of a hybrid war from the status quo, big media, big government, big corporations wanting to basically rip the rug out from underneath us and control us. I'm hearing things like we're not actually being governed anymore. We're being ruled And this is not right because the governments are our elected servants. And it's very frustrating. And I found myself belonging to three different spiritual groups. One particular group also involved of looking at the downside of new technologies like 5G, etc. And so we're in a tight bind and it's like... We are spiritual beings having an earth experience. We're somehow going along this birth canal that we're looking towards birthing ourselves into a new paradigm, Peter. And we are now coming up to some obstructions within this birth canal. And we need a breakthrough. We need people to realize that, recognize that we have all got an inner candle and it's time for us to be able to ignite 
this inner candle into far more than what it's been so that we can collectively, as a human race, break out of this lockdown and this old paradigm, this thought process where there's very little love and there's a heck of a lot of fear and come into a new realm of where we are a coherent, dynamic, caring, conscious global family. And that's all I can throw into the mix at the moment. You can understand that? I can, and I would like to look at a positive outcome to all this. But I think the problem is that we're not fulfilling our obligations to the planet. We're the caretakers. That means we're supposed to look after it responsibly. But that's not happening. There's too many sick, greedy people in charge whose God is money and power. And as long as they're there, things aren't going to change. The average person is actually too brainwashed. I mean, I often do tutorials in the community. And one of the things I point out at the beginning of some of those tutorials is that I say to the audience, do you realise you've got two washing machines in your house? (laughs) They all look at me blankly. They say, you've got that clothes washing machine and then you've got that big black flat screen TV, which is your brainwashing machine. As long as they sit in front of that, absorbing the information that's presented to them, they're being brainwashed. They have to realise that that's what it's there for. It's not to inform them, it's to misinform them. To be quite honest, I practice what I preach. We haven't owned a TV in decades. Me too. (laughs) Crazy. Carry on, Peter. So one of the things that did also become very apparent after Fukushima was that it had to have profound effects on the world population's health. And what I did at the beginning of that was to actually keep an eye on the world flu stats. And Google, at that time, was putting out a lovely world map showing where the outbreaks of flu were and the stats related to that. The reason I did that was my reasoning was that if you have a big dose of radiation being presented into the atmosphere that flowed over a number of countries, you would expect it to have an effect on the immune health of people. And I thought, well, if I kept an eye on the flu stats, it should give me an indication of how much the immune system to people is being infected. Well, it was quite shocking at the beginning. I started to notice quite dramatic increases in the number of hospitalizations for influenza in lots of different countries and fatalities after Fukushima. And I started to report on that on some websites. After a while, for some reason, Google decided to withdraw that information from public view. So it wasn't until probably 2018 that I came across a lovely piece of information. It was on a website, um, Zero Hedge, and it said the flu is ravaging America this year. And they had a beautiful infographic there of the cumulative number of hospitalizations for 100,000 people due to influenza that went back from 2011 and 12 to 2017 and 18. And that infographic clearly shows a dramatic increase year after year of the amount of hospitalizations of influenza in North America, which shows clearly that the immune systems of large numbers of people in the population has been compromised. And my belief is that was caused by their exposure to Fukushima radiation, but equally in combination with other things like chemicals and pollution, etc. But the main contributing factor in recent times has been the radiation clouds that have flowed from the east coast of Japan across the Pacific Ocean to North America. I would agree with you on that. 
I still think there's a lot of microwave activity in America. Everyone nearly has got a telephone up there, and they've been ramping up from 3G to 4G to 5G. That's all there. And as you said, they're eating GE food all over the place. The water that they're drinking is sanitised, and they're eating factory food, and they're eating industrial food, and they're indoors, and they've got... What do you call I it? Agree. Air, I agree. Air conditioner. I'm, yep. I agree. There are multiple factors are causing that immune suppression, and you can, all those are things are contributing factors, as well as the Fukushima radiation that came through as clouds. I've got an interesting story about ionising radiation and how it can affect people. I'm in IT and I work on computers all the time, but in my home office, I had a microwave meter. I had it there for a reason. One was to remind me to turn off wireless systems when I didn't need to be working on them so that I didn't have large exposures in the room. Anyhow, I had this phone call from a gentleman and said, look, I've been talking to my service provider and what's actually happened is that they spent nearly two or three hours trying to help me over the phone but they won't be able to resolve the issue. Can I bring my laptop and my modem to you? I said, yeah, that's fine. So he brought them down, dropped them off to me and I started having a look at them. I worked on his laptop first got it all working on the internet fine i then turned on his internet modem and the microwave meter alarm went off i had it set at a certain threshold to let me know if something significant was happening that i should know about i went over to it and said wow that's a huge reading so i took the meter and took it over to the modem and it was showing probably four to five times the radiation level that i'd ever come across out of any previous wi-fi internet modem I'd ever come across. So what I did was I rang him up and said, just out of curiosity, um, where do you have your modem in relation to your laptop on your desk? And he said, well, um, the actual modem sits on my desk next to the laptop and it's in my bedroom. I said, well, I think it may be a health hazard. He said, what? Then there was absolute silence on the other end of the phone. I said, are you there? He said, you know what? I've been to every possible medical test you could imagine, MRI, CT scans, I'm on all this medication. I've been to specialist doctors and no one could tell me why I've been having these debilitating headaches. Since you had the modem, all my headaches have disappeared. I do not want the modem back. (laughs) There you go. So what happened was I set him up a modem without wireless because he didn't even need it. He had a network cable coming from his old modem going to his laptop, so he didn't need one that was wireless. About six months later, he rings me up. He said, you know what? All my headaches have come back again. He said, what happened was the NBN came through and they gave me a new modem. And because of what you said to me, I realised what was happening and I went over and on these modems, I could press a button, turn the Wi-Fi off. As soon as I turned the Wi-Fi off, all my headaches disappeared. I'm not saying that that Wi-Fi signal of that strength from these modems affects everyone that way. But some people suffer from what's called microwave sickness in which they get peculiar sensation, feelings and effects, health effects from being exposed to microwave radiation. It's a little bit like Linda here can find that if she eats chocolate, she gets a huge migraine, whereas if I eat chocolate, I'm perfectly okay. So some people are suffering significant symptoms at much lower levels than other people. It doesn't mean it doesn't not affecting you. It's just you may not be presenting with the symptoms at this point. Yes, there's all of that. Different people have different sensitivities. I can assure you I've met many people. Now, can I quickly, Peter, just quickly go in because we're nearly at the end. Orion.ca, it's about a new way of 
getting energy based on plasma. Can you tell us about this in a few moments, please, this new system? I will put the web link in. But this is a breakthrough for our whole planet, if we can get it together. But I'd like to think that there are other, even cheaper ways. Can you explain quickly? Basically, this is about a plasma reactor. And a plasma reactor uses hydrogen. It's a fusion system. But whereas you can have what's called cold fusion... And you can have hot fusion. This is a warm fusion plasma reactor. I think it works at 2,500 degrees centigrade. It's a revolutionary way of producing energy because it doesn't have all the radioactive contamination and isotopes that are produced from other methods, which is a fission-style nuclear reactor. It's a breakthrough in lots of different ways because they claim that they can create clean energy production heating, and they can actually use it to transmute nuclear waste into, say, for pipes of materials. That's right. And they've been seven years of testing, and they've now got it to the point of a unique painted stable system, plasma reactor, and they're looking now to commercialise it, as far as I can tell. Just be aware that I have no commercial interest whatsoever in this type of technology. I just saw it as a marvellous breakthrough. They can get it to commercial production, it will be a lot cheaper than building those very hot-style fusion reactors that need lots of magnetic field strength and to contain it. And this uses an electrical system to create the hydrogen plasma and then releases more energy. In a lot of ways, I think it's the way the whole universe works. The whole universe is an electrical universe. That's right. And this yes. is one of the dynamics in which the whole universe creates energy. Yes, this is very true, and I think this information needs to come to the fore. So, There's a bit of a light there at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> that's right, most definitely. And, and just quickly, there's the latest Thrive movie too by Foster and Kimberly Gamble showed a man in Zimbabwe building an energy system that can take energy and electricity out of the atmosphere and have it produce more than it needs. Are you aware of the Thrive movie too? No, I'm not, actually. Oh, oh, gosh, yeah. It's excellent. It is superb. He does a wonderful job at getting this information out. Yes, there's more light at the end of the tunnel. And I just want to throw in quickly, there's also the use of shungite, which is only found in Russia, in northwest Russia. And it's a material that's it's found in the ground, and it's only one place. And they're looking at all sorts of uses, and we haven't yet done the research on it. Have you done any research on it, Peter, or are you still just in process? No, I haven't really looked at Shungite in great detail, but what Linda and I have been doing since Fukushima is actually using what's called uh, liposomal vitamin C. It's a combination of vitamin C and lecithin. Yes. You can buy it in capsules, but you can make it yourself. And the reason we went down that path is that there was a oncologist in Japan at the time of Fukushima doing ongoing research on the disaster site workers and found it was getting very good results from using uh, liposomal vitamin C. He found that it was for the workers who were actually already working at the site, if they were treated with it, had an improvement. And the people who took it before going to work in the clean-up crews at Fukushima also had much better health effects and he found that it seemed to be healing DNA damage. He presented this information at a big oncologist convention in Canada. You can actually make it yourself on one of the sites that I provide the food lab 
it actually gives you instructions on how to make it yourself also. Excellent. Can you give us that website, please? Yeah, that's the Food Lab. That site tells you how to use it and also flax seeds, which research has shown can help repair radiation lung damage. And it's dub dub dub. S C C C S and three C's dot org dot AU forward slash pages. That's P A G E S forward slash capital T for the minus sign capital F for food minus sign capital L for lab full stop HTML. But what you will find on the food lab, there's a huge list of contaminated food reports from all over the world, including Japan, North America, etc., and is continually added to. It has a country index where you can look up the radioactive food contamination in any particular country, including oceans as well, like Arctic Ocean, Baltic Sea, Irish Sea, Pacific Ocean, or ocean dumping in general. Okay. It's a great resource if you want to look up that subject. Yes. Well, we have to take care of our body temple, Peter, because that's all we've got. That's the only thing we've got, is our body and our ability to be able to create our way into a new paradigm out of this messy situation by transmuting all these downside vibes so that, again, our civilization, children of today and tomorrow, can look forward to a life where they can actually feel fulfilled and find a greater purpose and gift in life. That's right. So anyhow, the food lab is excellent. If you want to look where the food is that's contaminated is coming from, that site will give you the information. Excellent. Okay. Well, Peter, I want to say thank you very much. Really appreciate your time, your insight, the way you laid it out clearly, concisely, so that nobody now can make an excuse, say, I didn't know. But what I'm really wanting is to mobilise New Zealanders and Australians because our Aussie cousins over in your side of the water need to be able to get on board too because we've got multiple... <laughs> We've got multiple vectors of attack right now. That's very... not looking good. <laughs> <laughs> getting off the back foot and getting onto the front foot. This is where I really want us to be. And I'm still confident. I am still truly confident that we're going to get through this. We're going to have a lot of losses in the meantime, this collateral damage. But I know that the spirit of a human being once we organize and once we commit and once our intention is really really clear we can move mountains and you know we are we're very very creative and team spirit is part of the australian and the new zealand psyche as sports people we've always excelled solely because we played as a team and we're going to win and this one there's no other option for us but to come together yeah, but you see why I was a bit hesitant in presenting the information because it's not necessarily good news. And equally, the side of it is that one of the things that I try to emphasise is that a lot of these creatures didn't die from direct exposure to the radiation. They actually died because all their food chains were collapsing and most of them have died from starvation. It's something that people wouldn't think of. Yes, Peter, this is really, really important information. I greatly appreciate what you've done. Thank you. Thank you, Tim, for having me on. Hope you can put something together that makes sense to people. Okay, then. Thank you very much. Cheers, brother. Catch you soon. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. That was Peter Daly from Australia. 
I'm asking you, dear listeners, to network this. Network everything that you can see on greenplanetfm.com. We are challenged at the moment, and we need you, especially if you love your children and the future of children. Thank you. Coming from Planet FM at planetaudio.org.nz. Kia kaha and aroha.